Uh, well, thanks for being here. Uh, they say uh, power corrupts and uh, PowerPoint corrupts absolutely. Um, but I'm going to uh, do, do what I can uh, to, to wrap things up. So uh, always good to be here. The seven words you've been waiting for. I'm here to talk about media policy um, and a little bit of activism as well. Um, I'm going to pardon me being on this side of the room where I can hopefully see my notes a bit. Um, so it's, it's just so inspiring and refreshing to spend the day in a room full of activists who are so committed and creative, because I live in Washington, D.C., and uh, <laughs> you, don't, you don't get so much of this in Washington. You know, Washington, D.C. is a place, you know, it wasn't long ago that my good friends at AT&T at decided to have a meeting, and they wanted to invite all of their lobbyists to the meeting to discuss what AT&T was going to do for the year. And, Nobody's office was big enough, so uh, they had to rent out a movie theater. Now, people that do what I do every day, which is to try to uh, lobby in Washington and represent the public interest on media issues, we can pretty much still share a cab. And uh, I think we've just moved up to the minivan model, um, but it's, uh, it's a pretty small crowd. And, 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 and doing that, like doing all kinds of activism, uh, it can get pretty lonely sometimes when you you look up and you see all of those hired guns and all of the money that's just stacked up against you. And I imagine that's very true for a lot of you here who are activists, that you know, often you feel outnumbered and you know, sometimes you, you get a little hopeless. And you know, in many ways, this is literally the oldest story in the book. It's David versus Goliath. And when we're looking at all, oh, sorry, I almost forgot my artist rendition of David. Uh, <clears throat> When you're, when, you're, when you're wrestling with these giants all the time, so for me it's AT&T and Comcast and the National Association of Broadcasters and, and the U.S. Congress, when you're, when you're going up against these giants, the thing we tend to forget is that David wins sometimes. And in just the last year, we've seen it happen again and again and again. I mean, the AT&T merger with T-Mobile, despite all those lobbyists, was defeated and derailed. We beat big media companies in court when the FCC and the big media companies tried to gut some of the few remaining media ownership limits. Uh, Pat Buchanan, Glenn Beck, Lou Dobbs, they're not on cable TV anymore. That's because of activist protests against hate speech. And just recently, as many of you may have seen, there were 10 million Davids who organized against these web censorship bills called SOPA and PIPA, which I'll come back to in a second. So, so this is what we don't say often enough, is that David wins sometimes. And, and I think the question is why, how does, how does it happen, and what separated David uh, from all those other guys we don't read about who got squashed. Um, and when it comes to media issues, we have to figure out where do we need to aim our slingshots. So, you know, you're just being here on a Saturday is, is a huge first step. Because for, for so many people, they've been taught that our media system is just inevitable. Uh, it's just something that happens to you, that it's natural. Uh, of course, as, as most or many of you know, it's just not true. The media system we have, good and bad, is the result of political decisions and business decisions and policy decisions, complex policies that for far too long have been made in our name but without our involvement or consent. And the public needs to have a say in these crucial decisions. The public airwaves belong to us. The public airwaves that the broadcasters are using, that the cell phone companies are using, the streets that are dug up to put in high-speed internet lines and cable television, those belong to us. 
uh, and they forget it, but those elected officials in Washington, uh, they're supposed to answer to us as well. And we started my organization, Free Press, uh, 10 years ago because we believe that real change on any issue that matters will be impossible without better media. We believe that the only way ultimately to get better media is through better media policies, through looking at the structures. And so we tried to build an organization that works both on the inside, where we have lawyers and lobbyists in Washington and researchers who walk the halls of power and they dig around the basement of the Federal Communications Commission, but we also try to organize online and on the ground in communities across the country to build public support for better media through popular education. And we found that a lot of people care about this. 500,000 people signed up for our email list. Millions have taken action just in the past few years on these media issues that if you'd asked anybody five, six, seven, eight years ago, they would tell you nobody cares. Uh, we believe that mobilizing the public at critical junctures where they can really have an impact is how we are going to bring about real change. And I happen to believe that we are at one of those critical junctures right now. The decisions we make in just the next few years are going to decide whether we have quality journalism, whether the internet remains free and open, uh, and ultimately whether our democracy continues to flourish. Uh, I think that democracy requires journalism but that journalism also requires democracy, that it needs an engaged citizenry that's demanding the serious work to hold our leaders accountable. And uh, you know, I've been traveling a lot across the country, speaking on campuses and elsewhere, and there's one thing everywhere I go that everybody agrees on, uh, and it's that their local news just has got to be the worst in the country. <laughs> and uh, yeah, maybe they are right, but, but it's, it's not the worst, it's just the same. And at a time when there's, there's, there are more hours on local and national TV devoted supposedly to news, the public actually seems less informed than ever before about what's happening in their communities. And you know, we see the results every day, a broken political system that's unresponsive to political needs, low voter turnout, Rick Santorum, uh, I could go on. But at, at, at this point, you know, the media have really become complicit in the decline of our democracy. This is the largely untold story of the Citizens United decision at the Supreme Court, the, the fallout of that major decision, because we're hearing a fair amount about the unchecked money that's flooding into our elections, but we don't talk often enough, I don't think, about where that money ends up. And something like 60 cents of every dollar that is spent in our election uh, goes into the hands of broadcasters and cable companies to buy advertising. They're expected this election cycle to rake in $3 billion from the election, $3 billion. And that's exactly how most people are going to decide who they vote for. Now, you, you'll not be surprised to learn that those profits are not being, uh, not being reinvested in news gathering or efforts to help voters cut through the spin. We often hear, uh, especially in recent years, that journalism's in crisis. And, you know, if you're a working journalist, that's kind of true. I mean, tens of thousands of journalists have lost their jobs just in the past few years. You've certainly felt it here in Los Angeles, uh, very much so since the Tribune Company took over, among other things. Um, but the thing that we forget too often is that the most serious wounds that have affected the media industry and the corporate media, they were self-inflicted. Uh, with the 
toothless watchdogs in Washington, rubber stamping one mega merger after another. Uh, the big media companies uh, just kept getting bigger and they took on massive amounts of debt. So even if an individual property might still be profitable, uh, they're so in debt that they're drowning and they're taking our newsrooms down with them. Now, wherever you point the blame, the reality is there no longer seems to be enough money in the form of advertising or subscriptions or philanthropy to support the depth and breadth of quality news that we need in our communities. But if we agree that journalism is indispensable in a democratic society, and if we can see that the market is failing, then we need to start looking elsewhere for answers. And I think too much of the, the debate over the future of journalism has been obsessed with the new, new thing. A nifty payment system or a shiny device, a better search engine, corporate synergy, a rich uncle, some kind of cyborg that can write 10 stories a day, tweet, shoot video, and doesn't need to eat. Um, but I think the foundation of a better media system that actually could provide our communities with the news they need uh, it already exists. It includes a national network of TV and radio stations, innovative websites, hardworking journalists, some of whom you may know. It, it's public media. Uh, and when I say public media, yes, I do mean PBS and NPR, but not just PBS and NPR. Public media is community radio stations like KPFK, it's public access channels, it's independent journalism websites, it's much more. And the problem is that at the moment we need public and community media the most is the moment that they're in the greatest jeopardy. You've probably seen some of the trumped up controversies about Juan Williams getting fired at NPR or secretly recorded conversations with public media executives and doctored videos all designed to entrap them. I mean, the, these attacks on public media and, and maybe almost as bad the wimpy response from the biggest public media institutions are all the more regretful because public media is a winning issue. Surveys show that an overwhelming majority of Americans, Republicans and Democrats, support public funding for public broadcasting. In fact, they think it's the best use of their tax dollars than anything except for the national defense. Recently, there was one survey and it asked people, you know, public media and the budget, it's in the news, it's all over Fox News, how much of the national budget do you think goes to public media? And the, the people in the survey said 5%. Now, 5% is about $190 billion. The interesting thing about the survey, though, is when they, people said 5% and they asked them, well, do you think that's good use of your money? They said yes. They said yes. They supported public media. They thought it was a good use of their tax dollars. Now, of course, we don't actually spend $190 billion uh, in federal money on public media. We spend about 420 million, maybe it's 440 this year, uh, and it works out to about $1.50 per capita. If you, if you can't find the United States, we're this tiny dot right here. $1.50, a cup of coffee. I actually don't think you can actually get a cup of coffee for $1.50 anymore. But so at the time when the need couldn't be bigger, we're spending pocket change. By comparison, as you'll see here, Canada spends about $27 per capita, England 87. And it's no coincidence that all the countries at this end of the chart, the big bubbles, all those countries, when The Economist magazine, I think a known liberal rag, The Economist magazine, when The Economist magazine ranks 
uh, democracies. They do an index of democracies every year, and it says, you know, which countries have the best governance and the most respect for civil liberties and other things that you would want your country to have. Well, all the countries at the top of the list heavily subsidize public media. The United States, 17th. So, look, we're never going to spend $100 per capita like Finland or Denmark. Even an optimist like me does not think a television tax like they have in England is probably going to fly in the United States. But it's not hard to imagine what we could do if the American public media system just spent $5 per capita a relatively small increase. With $5 per capita spent on public media, we could hire 10,000 journalists to cover local news in communities across America. We could establish thriving nonprofit local journalism websites invested in immediate beat reporting and long-term investigative journalism. We could build thousands of new community radio stations. We could start community media centers and erect high-speed internet access between community institutions, and we could, we create, we could create quality content freely accessible on every platform, print, broadcast, mobile phones, you name it. We could do all this and so much more, but to get there, we have to get public media away from this annual appropriations process where they sort of get on their knees every year and, and hope that Congress will give them a little bit more, and, and we need to create a trust fund. Uh, we have to seed that trust fund with, frankly, billions of dollars. Uh, but if we did that, if we invested that money, uh, we could create an endowment that would eventually allow public and community media outlets to become nearly or completely self-sufficient. Uh, we could do this and so much more, uh, and you know, the money is out there. Uh, it's just being spent on you know, outdated fighter jets and tax breaks for the 1%. So what's missing is the political will to do it. Now that doesn't mean that there's not a lot of political activity around public media. The last time the Republicans tried to cut funding for public media a year ago, Something like two million people contacted Congress and rallied to the defense of public media. But in between, we don't ask people to do anything. We ask them to go give it their pledge drives, and we ask them to maybe make a phone call when it gets really bad, but we're not organizing them. And there are millions and millions. Public media claims there are 170 million people out there that uh, listen or interact with public media on a regular basis. That's a huge constituency. Um, but to get there, to focus on that organizing, political leaders at places like NPR and PBS need to get outside the beltway and start paying more attention to the grassroots. Uh, the best example I know of is the Prometheus Radio Project. So the Prometheus Radio Project is a group out of Philadelphia that works on building low-power FM or LPFM stations. These are tiny stations, 100 watts, with a broadcast radius of maybe three to five miles. But they're intensely local, non-commercial, and focused on community needs. Now, the problem is that we've created this service, but it's mostly limited to rural areas because when they originally wrote the bill that commercial broadcasters, backed by NPR, uh, put limits on where those stations could be, how, mu how much space there had to be on the dial to create one of these stations. And so urban and suburban areas were mostly left out. Now Prometheus, which used to be a group of radio pirates, they began organizing against this. And they really did an amazing job. They built this broad bipartisan coalition with the religious community and Zydeco music enthusiasts and punk rock kids. And uh, they got support. They actually got a bill through the House of Representatives in 2010 with broad bipartisan support. But when it got to the Senate, it was being blocked. And there's this thing you can do in the Senate if you're a senator. Uh, you can put a secret hold on a bill. You just say, it's not moving, I, I say no. And you don't even have to say who you are. 
And it just kept happening. Every time we'd figure out who had the secret hold, somebody else would put one on. And the reason is the National Association of Broadcasters was calling around and saying, stop this bill. Uh, and so here you got Prometheus Radio Project, this grassroots group going up against the National Association of Broadcasters, and there's no way they can win behind the scenes. So they came up with another strategy, which I'm going to show you very quickly on this video. So you get the idea. So, and I'm a sucker for street theater, but here's the thing. This draws so much attention, and what you'd see if we had more time and showed the whole video, you'll see all these people that work for the NAB hiding behind the glass. I mean, they locked the doors, but they were all there with their cameras and cell phones taking pictures of this right in the middle of downtown D.C. And the attention from this protest, it got too embarrassing to keep those secret holds. And a couple days later, uh, the bill passed with near unanimous consent and was signed into law. So pr pretty good results. So when I'm talking to folks from PBS and NPR, you know, I don't actually think PBS and NPR are going to be saved with hula hoops, although we haven't tried it. Um, but what I am saying is that if they keep doing the same things over and over again, if they keep firing somebody every time a Republican sneezes at them, if they keep frankly, believing that public support for public media is doomed, then they're going to squander that support and it's really going to become a self-fulfilling prophecy. Um, I want to talk a little bit about the internet. Uh, High-speed internet access is, is fast becoming the 21st century's essential infrastructure. I don't know if it's quite up there yet with uh, water or electricity, but I think it ranks right there with hot water. Sorry? Oh, okay, sorry. Well, I'll explain it. So anyway, these are the international broadband penetration rankings. Uh, so this is the percentage of people who, who get broadband in these various countries. And uh, about a third of Americans still don't have broadband access at home. Uh, and in, the, in, in this measure, uh, the United States has actually dropped, you'll see, between 2000 and, uh, between 2000 and 2008, we went from uh, fifth in the world in broadband penetration to 22nd. That's the wrong direction. Um, uh, right now in Japan, they're rolling out internet service that is 20 or 50 times faster than what you can get here. They pay half as much a month for it. Uh, and Americans have the best two choices, two choices for internet service, the phone company or the cable company. <laughs> but instead of investing in their networks, uh, they seem more interested in how they can control and monetize your experience. This is their vision for the future of the internet. It looks, you'll notice, a lot like cable television. Uh, this, this, this one's not actually real, uh, an activist made it, but this is what they're thinking about. Like, oh, well, you know, the internet, why don't we, instead of you, you go online, you can do whatever you want, download whatever you want, why don't we have tiers? Where you pay a little bit depending on what you're interested in. That's the world that they're used to, that's how they think about the internet. And, uh, you know, it's getting worse because this one actually is a real document put together by these companies. Uh, that they, they show at their trade shows, where they think about like, hey, how can we make a little bit extra about what you want to do with your phone? What if we, you know, let's charge a little bit every time you go on Facebook or you want to use Skype, every YouTube video you want. This, if they can get away with it, if they can convince our regulators in Washington, this is their vision of the future of the internet. And now, some of you may have heard of this issue called net neutrality or network neutrality, uh, which has become sort of a hot button issue around, around the internet. And, Net neutrality is a pretty simple idea. It's the, it's the fundamental principle that when you go online, you can go wherever you want, do whatever you want, download whatever you want. And it's not up to your phone or cable company to decide which websites are going to work and which aren't. It's, it's, it's the beauty of the internet. It's what pushed all the innovation to the edges and really made the internet an unrivaled source of democratic participation and free speech and economic innovation as well. 
So net neutrality, though, has been under attack from the big phone and cable companies. And the fact that we have any net neutrality protections at all is another one of those David and Goliath stories, um, which I will try to keep quick so we can get to that reception. Um, but uh, a couple years ago, there was this big vote in the Senate Commerce Committee. Senate Commerce Committee controls internet policy. And they were rewriting the Telecommunications Act or trying to do so. And the big question was, were they going to include net neutrality in it? And there was a vote, and it ended in a tie. Some Republicans crossed over. It was deadlocked. Now, it turns out in the Senate, the tie does not go to the runner. It was actually a loss. Net neutrality was not going to be protected by the Senate. But the then chairman of the Senate Commerce Committee, a guy named Ted Stevens, he was really angry that people had voted against him. May he rest in peace. He's no longer with us. But here he was in charge of internet policy. And he was so upset that he grabbed the mic in the committee hearing, and he, he just started ranting. And he started ranting about how his staff had sent him an internet on Friday, but he didn't get it till Monday. And he was really adamant about this one point. He just kept saying, you know, the internet is not a truck. It is a series of tubes. <laughs> now, remember, this is the senior member of the Senate responsible for internet policy. Now, he was ranting, and there were a lot of reporters in the room from big outlets, a lot of reporters. None of them wrote about it. They didn't think it was news. There was one media activist and blogger there, and he thought it was pretty outrageous, and he got a recording of the rant, and he put it on the internet. And, and it went crazy, it went viral. You know, people started passing it around, you could buy a t-shirt that said series of tubes on it. You know, they were even remixing it as a, as a techno dance tune, which I think I have a section of for you here. Oh, there we go. Anyway, three million people watched that video. And the thing is, it got so embarrassing. The Daily Show got a hold of the rant, and they started mocking him. And it got so embarrassing for the Republicans that they just killed the bill. They shelved it. It was right before the ele midterm elections in 2008. Uh, and uh, uh, they, uh, or excuse me, 2006? No, 10. 2010, thank you. Uh, and, uh, and, and it was so embarrassing that they just said, you know, we're not going to uh, bother. Uh, with this with this anymore, uh, we'll, we'll let it go. And then this is when the Democrats came in and took power. And so net neutrality was spared for a day. But look, it wouldn't have happened if that one guy hadn't have been in the room. Uh, and here we are uh, a number of years later still fighting for net neutrality. So it actually wasn't 2010, it was earlier. Um, and uh, look, the FCC did pass some rules uh, in late 2010, in December of 2010. They made net neutrality rules, but the problem is they did a pretty good job of protecting your home connection, but they didn't extend the same protections to those mobile devices. Uh, so the ability to discriminate and sort of pick and choose winners and losers, that still exists if you're trying to use your mobile phone, uh, which is a big problem uh, with the rules. But even those watered-down rules weren't good enough for the Republicans in Congress when they did get back in control uh, in 2010. Uh, and they actually tried to pass a rule saying the FCC couldn't make any rules whatsoever. Um, and overturn those rules, uh, which was something we at least were able to stop uh, this past fall in the Senate. Uh, this year, the big net neutrality fight is going to be in the courts. Uh, at Free Press, we're actually suing the FCC uh, because we think they were arbitrary and not protecting wireless connections. But at the same time, Verizon is suing the FCC, saying that they do not have the authority to make rules protecting the open internet. 
Um, so if they win, and it's going to be heard in a very conservative court, the DC Circuit Court of Appeals, uh, net neutrality, we could have no net neutrality protections whatsoever. So the kind of internet organizing that really blossomed during the net neutrality fight though, and one reason I'm so optimistic is that it's only grown more potent. Uh, and you know, if you, if you followed at all the recent fight over the Stop Online Privacy Act, oh really, okay, <laughs> and the Protect IP Act, best known by their acronyms SOPA and PIPA, these bills pushed, uh, they were being pushed by the powerful Hollywood studios uh, with, in the name of combating piracy, but they were written so broadly that they really would have fundamentally harmed the basic architecture of the internet and they would have caught up lots of lawful internet users uh, in this broad sweep with really no due process. And the internet really mobilized against this. And on January 18th, you may have saw this, a bunch of websites driven by the grassroots and by a lot of entrepreneurs went black, including Wikipedia, Google blacked out their logo for a day. And by the end of the day, 10 million people had taken action against SOPA and PIPA which is really remarkable, and all of a sudden, all the co-sponsors started jumping off the bill. All four Republican presidential candidates, in addition to President Obama, suddenly disowned the bill, and it was shelved and defeated. Um, so a, a tremendous victory. And you know, the thing is, uh, Capitol Hill is starting to see the power of uh, internet organizing, um, but the lobbyists aren't very happy about it. <laughs> and uh, after the bill was defeated, uh, Chris Dodd, who's a former US senator, who now runs the Motion Picture Association of America, he, he, he had this quote, it was, it was broadcast on Fox, uh, and it was a warning to Congress that said, those who count on Hollywood for support need to understand this industry is watching very carefully who's going to stand up for them when their job is at stake. Don't ask me to write